the Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, with Pastor John King. We got an exciting day planned today. First, we're going to start with uh, our continuation here in Colossians chapter 3. And we will go verses uh, 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1 tonight, today. Um, while you're turning there, uh, just a quick recap from last week. Uh, we were given God's instructions for the Christian home. Wives, husbands, children, and parents. Relationships within the family that should reflect our completeness in Christ. We talked about at our, our life in Christ is rooted in Christ, the root of our lives. And being rooted and made complete in Him then produces fruit in our lives and in the home. And the examples from last week were wives who lovingly respect their own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands who love their wives without harshness as Christ loved the church. Children who obey their parents in order to please God and fathers and parents who lead their kids without provoking them towards rebellion or a heartless compliance. Hopefully, my desire, our desire as family members is to really want to live as Christians in our homes. And the reason, uh, many reasons, but we want to experience the fullness of God, not only you know, here in our fellowships and our, our work relationships, but everywhere in our homes. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes uh, that is not happening in our homes. There's, there's a lot of struggle and strife. And so the Lord had instructions for us for that last week. God intends. And we, we read from Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4, speaking of the home. He said, the writer said, Through wisdom a house is built. And by understanding, it is established. And by knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Now today, we're going to look at the fruit of our lives, kind of to the extended family. Because aside from the time you spend at home with your families, many people spend actually more time in the workplace. And so we're going to look at the fruit of our lives as it pertains to to the work environment that God has placed us in. Whatever role we have, whether you're an employee, whether you're a business owner, whether you're a manager, or if you're self-employed, to the extent that you and I contribute to the work environment, it should be an environment that's ruled by the peace of Christ as far as what we bring to the table. It should be an environment that is, you know, under the word of the Lord, how we behave and what we believe. And of course, under the name of the Lord. That's how we are to be. That's the fruit of our lives as we uh, work among others, as we do business in this world. Colossians 3.17, we saw last week, it says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, you know, nothing's left out, nothing's hidden in the eyes of the Lord and in a, in a life of a believer. So let's look at the passage, 3, verse 22. He starts out, Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, 
fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so, our Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, you are our master, you are our king. You sit high above all things. All things are held together by you, and our hearts are held in your heart, Lord God. And our our lives are held in your hands. And so, Lord, we submit once again to you and to your word, Lord God. We come under your word's teaching, your word's correction, your word's encouragement. We come to be nourished, to be refreshed, and to be brought closer unto you. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. A little background on this particular topic. Uh, As we study the Bible, you guys know that we will encounter things we read in ancient culture that we in our modern culture have a difficulty relating to. And it's during those times that we need to pause and and seek wisdom and understanding from the Lord through the proper understanding and context uh, of the Word of God. And you notice that Paul is matter-of-factly describing what was once considered normal to society, and that is human slavery. And it's a subject that we rightfully find to be appalling, to be cruel, to be immoral, and illegal. And we can have the tendency, though, with the help of some of the cultural influencers out there who look to exploit the sins of the past, we can have a tendency to sometimes arrogantly look down on previous cultures as though we are so much better than them. You know, we've kind of arrived. But truthfully, we're just as cruel and bloody a society today as there were some of our, in some of our ancestors. When you consider infanticide and abortion, when you consider human trafficking and pornography and drug trafficking, government corruption and corporate greed, to name just a few of the things that our culture sometimes uh, is covered with, is is full of. Uh, We we aren't in a position then, are we, uh, to arrogantly look on the past. Now, You may recall the question we had, it wasn't but a couple months ago, we brought up the same topic of human slavery while studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And many people, rightfully so, and you and I, you may get this from people asking you this question. Why didn't Jesus and the apostles call for the abolition of slavery in their day? And it's a very simple answer. One writer said it this way. At the time, the church was a very small minority already being persecuted and with no political power. Teaching slaves to rebel would have only resulted in the slaughter of thousands of slaves. However, the inspired writers of the Bible planted seeds that would ultimately lead to the undermining of slavery. When you consider what Paul wrote near the end of his ministry to Timothy, in verse Timothy uh, 1, 9, and 10, Paul goes, uh, in this passage, he lists another sin list, if you will, for the things that God judges those who don't know Christ uh, for and under. 
And you see the list. The law was not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners and for the unholy and profane, for murderers and fathers and murder of mothers, excuse me, murderers of mothers, for manslayers. But notice in verse 10, he says also for fornicators, for sodomites, but for kidnappers. Kidnappers would be held under the judgment of God. The word kidnappers in your King James Version means men-stealers. And it referred to the slave traders in Roman times. So already Paul is speaking against and planting the seeds to undermine the whole uh, you know, thing of slavery. The point being is that the Bible does not endorse human slavery. During the time of Paul's ministry, many slaves and, and we call them bond servants or servants. They were those who were captured as prisoners of war and then sold into slavery. Unlike our common understanding of slavery as being based strictly on racial and ethnic oppression, slavery in the time of the ancient world was for some a way to pay off debts. It could be limited by time and slaves were from all walks of life even doctors and teachers. Ancient historians estimate that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, or about one half of the population. There wasn't a lower class, middle class, upper class society back then. You were either a slave or not. Now you have to ask the question, you may think, well, am I trying to say that slavery is okay? No, I am not. In fact, we'll see how slavery was viewed by those in power and influence. If you ask the question, those that were in power and influence in ancient society, uh, some people viewed it as necessary. Why? Because work was considered to be below the dignity of a slave-owning Roman free man. So that's the type of world it was. And I like what William Barclay, how he explains it. He says, uh, practically everything was done by slaves, even doctoring and teaching. Though there were some happy relationships between masters and slaves, basically the lot of a slave was not very happy. Ancient tradition dating back to Aristotle classified slaves as things, living tools. And the Roman Varro classified farm implements into three classes. The articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. The articulate being the slaves. A later Roman writer recommended a grim utilitarianism in buying a farm. First of all, you toss out the old slaves to die because they were broken tools and some did just that. So don't, don't think that I'm trying to paint something about slavery as being okay. Uh, it was normal, just roll with it. No, it wasn't good at all. And, but, but Christianity, the point is Christianity changes culture. Christianity shifts the culture. And in chapter 4, we're going to learn of a runaway slave named Onesimus. You may have heard of him. Now, he would, he would attempt, accompany Tychius to Colossae, and, and he would be the one to help deliver this letter from Paul. The master or owner of Onesimus was a member of the Colossian church. His name was Philemon. And you might be familiar because his name, as we see, is a title to one of Paul's letters. Paul writes to Philemon to plead forgiveness toward his slave who has become a Christian. So Christianity is now changing the culture. And so now you have slaves and masters in the same church. 
Philemon 1.18 says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. Therefore, receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. For your good deed might not be by compulsion. It might not be by compulsion, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. In verse 16, it says, No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. And so as I'm saying, the spread of the gospel worked to undermine and abolish the practice of slavery over the course of time. Yet our modern economic and social structure is still based on a workforce that has, has both owners and workers. I realize that was kind of a long uh, beginning but we need to have that in mind as we defend the faith because people who look to exploit the sins of past generations like to poke us in the eye with the fact that, you know, here's Paul speaking of slavery, referring to slaves and masters. They like to take the Bible and twist it and try to use it against us. But we need to keep in mind both the ancient context and the modern day equivalent. Servants are employees and masters are employers. This is the letter to Christians who fall under those societal or social categories. Amen? So we start out in verse 22. We're going to start with believers as employees. And, and as you see on the slide, uh, your requirement, my requirement as an employee is to be both obedient and sincere. He says, in a, he's got a first command here. He says, bond servants... Continually obey your earthly masters. Or the way he writes it is, Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Now the word slave, you've heard it, the Greek word many times, doulos. It's depending on what Bible translation you have. You will see the English word, slave, or you'll see servant, or you'll see bond servant. So we're commanded to continue to obey. And also, there's a scope of our obedience. He says, obey in all things. Hupakeo. Now this, again, when we listen from last week for parents and children, children are to obey their parents in all things. The act of obeying is really to listen attentively in order to conform to a command. It's not optional or voluntary compliance. If you're on the job and the boss asks you to do something, you know, that he, he or she has hired you to do, uh, you are to obey. You're to do the job you're hired to do. But we also know that there's a limit to the things we as Christians will do. We won't do anything that's immoral, that goes against God's word. And so we know that Acts 5.29 said, like Peter and the other apostles, they answered to those and they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So when it, there is a line that, that we would not cross as employees that our employer might ask of us to do or try to force us to do. He says, but obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. And then we have kind of the how not to obey. He goes right into the how not to obey. And he says, not with eye service as men pleasers. Uh, 
This is service performed only when the boss is looking. Uh, you're diligently performing it while he's looking, but you're neglecting it in his absence is what that's talking about. He uses an interesting word, men pleasers. This means that you study your boss to please them. You know their habits. You know their comings and goings. You know when they're in the office and you know where they're not in the office. You know when they're on the work floor, on the production floor, you know when they're not. You know when they're watching you and you know when they're not because you study their habits. And when you try to study the boss's habits in order to falsely present yourself as a good worker only when he sees you and then you slow down when the coast is clear, you're not obeying God's word. You're sinning. And so he says, that's how not to obey. And then he says, how to obey. In other words, the manner of your obedience is in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Or singleness of heart. Simplicity. Mental honesty. You know, you come to give a good fair day's work for a fair day's pay. This is the virtue of one who is free from pretense and your mind is not divided or clouded with ulterior motives. You're there to do a job and you're there to work hard and do it well. And the motive for your obedience is your reverence for Christ. Remember, Christ in your life and you coming to Christ and the effect that it has on society should change the environment you're in. And so you fear God. This is a reverential fear. This isn't a fear of, you know, an, un an unhealthy fear. This is a healthy fear of God. Hughes writes this about the, the, the fearing God. He points out that the pagan slave served his master because he was bound by fear, but the Christian slave served his master better because he feared God. And working hard at our task from a heart that brings glory to God. And so questions about this. You, you know, you kind of, I've already stated it, but if you're asking yourself the question, what does it mean if I'm a Christian in the workplace? Well, first of all, you need to ask yourself about your behavior. Do I find myself always whining about the boss or management or the man? You know, I'm working for the man. Am I always complaining about the job or the workload? How about gossip? Uh, we had a, had a man working on it. You guys remember when our air conditioning let go and dripped water during the service, right? And everybody's, I didn't understand what was going on because I'm totally oblivious to what was happening. And the poor guy that came out to fix it, you know, he was having a rough day. His truck had broken down. He had to transfer all his tools from one truck to another. And he was here at the very last of the, of the day and he fixed our problem, obviously. There's no leaks. But... I remember him being, he was just, he was frustrated. And I remember him up there and he, he didn't know anybody was listening. You know, I'm walking around and, and he's up there in the overhead on his, and all I see are these feet sticking, coming down uh, on, a, on a ladder. And I hear him going, I love my job. I love my job. I love my job. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this guy, you know, as some days you have to tell yourself that. He's a good man. I believe he is a, I believe he is a believer. Uh, and he works hard. And I I, he's the guy I like to see coming to work on my air, air conditioning. He's actually worked on the house as well. He comes with all, he's got a big backpack and all his tools. He's been doing it for over 20 years. Bless, bless his heart. Bless, for, bless those who take care of us and who will stick to a job and fix things. Amen? But what are you known for? 
Are you known in the workplace to look for the easy route? Do you show up on time? Proverbs 18.9 says, He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. Who are you associating yourself with? Everyone wants a job that they love. And that is not a wrong desire. But it is not always a reality. We can have both unpleasant and difficult times at work. The changes that resulted from the gospel going into pagan society as more slaves became Christ followers goes like this. One writer said it this way. He says, some can see nothing noble in the tasks they perform. They are nevertheless serving God as they work. This truth has transformed the lot of the Christian slaves in the ancient world. His nothing tasks were actually noble when done for Christ. And one writer put it this way, because of this, Christian slaves were invariably brought higher prices in the slave market. Is your higher ability as an employee bring a higher price and greater compensation because of your work ethic and because of the reputation you have? A typical person will view work and the education or training needed to get hired as a means to an end. Job security, higher pay, paid vacation, health benefits, and retirement benefits. And of course these things are not wrong in and of themselves. But friends, there will come a time in your life, many of you have asked this question. Maybe you're, you know, you're just wanting to... Uh, you know, work hard and, and achieve something. And, and if, you, if you don't realize who you're working for ultimately and where your ultimate destination is, if you're a Christian and your ultimate destination is in heaven, you're going to start asking the question, what am I missing? Is life simply just this cycle of eat, sleep, and work, wake up again, you know, repeat day in and day out? Have I or am I becoming a slave to success? and achievement. I can say that that was my path. That was my course in life. Uh, you know, you become addicted to things. Uh, you, you maybe grow out of the party lifestyle as a young child and you as, as an, a young adult and as a, a teenager. But then you might find uh, your rush is to be uh, achiever, to, to make things, uh, make a name for yourself, to become popular and well-known. But that doesn't deliver. That doesn't, that doesn't deliver the goods. You will still find yourself coming up empty. And you can, you can look up the testimony of the world's greatest millionaires and billionaires from times past and times present. And they will tell you that they, when they're being honest, that they don't have any fulfillment in all the things that they've managed to accomplish in and of themselves. Now, they're not bad, but it does you no good to store up treasures here on earth if you're not storing up treasures in heaven. Amen. Amen. Well, what does God expect? Well, here we have in verse 23, you know what God expects from you and I? Simple, hard work. That's what he expects from you and I in the workplace. He says the first command was continue to obey your, or to continue to obey your earthly masters. Now the second command is that you and I are to continually work hard. It says in 23, and whatever you do, do it heartily. Heartily, man. Do it from the soul. You know, put something into it. And the motive of your service is as to the Lord and not to men. 
You know, that's where the switch starts to happen. And you realize why you're here, why you were put on this earth, as you've come to know the Lord. As Christians, we work first for the Lord, writes Tommy Heigl, and second for our paychecks. It is very important to keep this verse in context. The slaves to whom this was originally written had little, if any, opportunity whatsoever to escape slavery. Most received no monetary compensation for their work. Think of how much more this verse applies to employees today who can easily change jobs, receive not only a wage or a salary, but all the benefits that our society offers. So the motive of our service is as to the Lord, but the encouragement of our service. You know, again, it's not just an end, a means to an end. It's the heavenly reward and service to Christ that we're talking about. Look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Reward of the inheritance. This is the prospective condition and the possessions of a believer in the new order. When you become a Christian and when you come and stand before the Lord, you'll see uh, one, one thing, one promise we have is in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. That reward, that reward of our inheritance. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time or in the last time. That's what you have and that's what you and I have to look forward to. That's where, you know, the fact that I love my job, I love my job, is because I know that the inheritance is so much greater. So that's the good news. God rewards faithful Christian workers, whether they were first century slaves or modern day workers. You know, slaves didn't have an inheritance no matter how hard they worked, often. The same is true for many of us today. You may have heard the saying, the world owes you nothing. And that's attributed to a statement by the famous Mark Twain. The full quote says, don't go around saying that the world owes you a living. The world owes you nothing. It was here first, as Mark Twain would say. This statement is now today and has been used by motivational speakers, right? The ones who uh, want to influence you, the influencers and the motivational speakers, uh, so that you can buy their books and, of course, like their pages. But they also want to get you and I to self-motivate for success. This can be a very depressing world. And there are times, many times, where we kind of have that poor me syndrome. But as Christians, you and I have all the motivation we need right here. He says, for you serve the Lord Christ. Jesus is our boss. He's not only our friend, but he's our boss. We serve him. We yield our, our obedience to him. And this ought to be an encouragement to us, said one writer. Whatever your lot in life is, God pays us so well that when we get to heaven, we will wish we had served him even more. You know, that's the thing. Uh, you can't outgive God. You can't outserve God. 
So that was the good news. That's, that's all, you know, we always want to hear the good news. What about the bad news? There's always bad news too, right? Verse 25 talks about the consequences for you and I of poor service. He says, but he who does wrong will re be repaid for what he has done. Now th that word wrong means to act unjustly or wickedly and to sin. Even though you might tend to overlook laziness on the job or whatever it is, God still considers it to be a sin. And we will be repaid for what we've done. This is the, the, the word is uh, comiso. It's a metaphor for receiving back again. You know, uh, what goes around comes around in a sense, in a spiritual sense. You and I as believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And for the wrong done in this life, we will reap what we sow. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all, Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now this is not the same kind of judgment that the lost will stand before God called the great white throne judgment. Somebody who has not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. At the end of time, before the earth is rolled up, that, those, that group of people, those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life, they will stand to be accused of everything they've ever done. But we still have accountability as Christians based on how we live our lives and our rewards. This is talking about whether we receive or not receive eternal rewards in heaven. So the good news is that God repays or rewards faithful Christian workers. But the bad news is God repays poor service by Christians by judgment resulting in the loss of reward. Not a loss of salvation. The loss of your eternal reward. You know, if you live your life forgetting that you serve the Lord Jesus in all things, if you lived your life forgetting that verse, in all things give glory to God, you could find yourself, as David Guzik describes it, he says, we must live understanding that what we have done will be judged. It is possible to have a saved soul and a wasted life. And that will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Paul represents essentially, the, or he presents the same idea in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, where he speaks of a coming assessment of each one's work before the Lord. In that passage, he makes it clear that what we do and our motive for doing it will be tested by fire. And the purifying fire of God will burn up everything that was not of him. Again, ultimately, all Christians, Christians born again who've given your life, surrendered your life to the Lord, are under his eternal forgiveness. But he still holds us accountable. And so as we think of this passage, think of the incentives that we have to work and to do a good job. Think of the, think of the things that the Lord has given us. We have much to be thankful for, even in this life. And if you're a competent worker the chances are pretty good that you will be promoted beyond entry-level jobs as you progress in your life as an employee. Most people with great jobs have worked long and hard to get where they are today. 
Don't lose your perspective. Labor, achievements, accomplishments, promotions, financial wealth, apart from Christ, are vanity. Ecclesiastes 1.14, one of the richest men and the wisest men in the world at one point, Solomon said, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. We talked about the world not owing this, and this comes true sometimes even when we work very hard at our jobs, yet we find ourselves losing that job. Sometimes, you know, life is really truly unfair, and you can be let go, even though you did your best on the job. And what about the workaholic syndrome? We can also get way out of balance with excessive work habits, and that harms relationships. How can we be considered to be the best workers? Simple. What your, what your mom taught you, what your dad taught you, what your grandparents taught you. Come to work with the best attitude, to be dependable and hard work. But as a Christian, you know, if that's what, not what I'm wanting to do, if I'm not willing to come with the best attitude, if I'm not willing to be uh, dependable and work hard, then anything less than that for us as Christians is a sinful lifestyle, if we make that our habit. The perfect judge, Jesus Christ, he takes our responsibilities as Christians in the workplace very seriously. And how often do you and I consider this aspect of accountability? We, we oftentimes, we forget that not only are we surrounded by angels, but the Lord is sitting there with us. He's, he's right there with us. He sees everything that happens in our life, every thought. So what are we to do? Well, you're to honor your boss. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. It says, Let as many bondservants are as under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, you know, Christians, now the world is changing while Paul's writing this, let them not despise them because they are brethren. See, now your now your master is your brother in the Lord. Your, your slave, your employee is your brother or sister in the Lord. But rather serve them because those uh, who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. That was Paul's instruction to Timothy. It's, our, it's his instruction to us today. Finally, we look at verse 1 of chapter 4. We're going to talk about believers as employers. And there's two words for an employer. If you're a manager or a boss or employer. And that is that you are to be just and fair to your employees. He says masters are to continually grant justness and fairness to their slaves. Masters, give your bond service what is just and fair. What is just, meaning what is due others. Christian employers are to treat all workers with dignity and respect no matter what role the employee is hired for. This means no partiality. So just is what is due and fair, what is equitable. Remember, under Roman law, the slaves had no rights at all. So these words had a strange ring to non-Christians and to the newly believing master as the world was changing, as the gospel was entering the workplace. Also, given the social conditions of the times, this command may have been more difficult to carry out than what was asked of the slaves. The master who attempted to provide his slaves with what is right and fair ran the deep risk of ostracism from his fellow slave owners. 
We begin our message today with the question of why didn't Jesus or the apostles call for the abolition of slavery? The short answer that it wasn't, is that it wasn't time yet. But notice here how Paul's command would contribute to the eventual undermining of the institution of slavery. He was now demanding that the new, uh, newly converted Christian slaveholders treat their slaves with dignity and fairness. Before this, masters had no such responsibility. Paul didn't have to lead a revolt. The spread of the gospel changes everything. Study your history and you'll see. And finally, for the employer, the motive for doing this and treating their employees with, with the fairness is knowing that you too, employee, boss, manager, have a master in heaven as well. Luke 6.46, Jesus says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not the things which I say? Knowing that we will answer to God if you were someone's boss or manager, are you taking the time to ensure that they're getting paid fairly as much as you can control that? What about their family and their home situation and their health care? Vacation time. No matter what social position you have, knowing that you're seen by God should cause us to be concerned for how we treat our boss and our workers. So the Lord has his eyes on us and so does the world. We, uh, we are a witness to the world. We're a witness to those who spend time uh, especially more time on the job than with family. Some jobs are very demanding for a season. How we conduct ourselves. You know, if you see that you've been undercharged at the store, somebody's been manning that cash register for who knows how long. Maybe they had a double shift. Maybe they undercharged you, and you, you, know, you go out and you look at you know, man, I got an extra whatever. The right thing to do is to bring it back humbly and pay for the merchandise. Don't think, oh, I got a good deal. You know, look at two for one. No, that's not how it works. It's not how it should work in the life of a Christian. So as we begin to transition our time towards communion, we're going to look at the work that Christ did on our behalf on the cross. We're going to see that he was obedient unto the Father. He served in the role that God gave him. So let's uh, have the worship team come up as we move into our time of communion. We can uh, bring the lights down, please, and uh, prepare our hearts for this. <clears throat> well, Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we've been given your word as a as a guidepost, as a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet, Lord. We thank you that you um, don't leave us blind or helpless or hopeless in how to navigate our lives as believers, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And, you know, you, you often speak to our conduct and our needs where the rubber meets the road in, in our, our life and our witness to the world around us. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word today. And as we begin to transition and make our hearts ready for communion. I pray that each and every one of us will uh, take the time. We're not in a big rush here, Lord. Take the time to...
examine our hearts and make sure that you know we're right we got some things right between ourselves and between you and others Lord that we have a time to reflect and consider our lives before you and if there is a, a need for any of us here to make that restitution of uh, seeking forgiveness or seeking forgiveness in our hearts before you Lord uh, may we begin to do that as we uh, as we prepare for communion today today's communion passage is Luke 24 verses 14 through 20 and I'm just going to before we come up to take communion we're going to kind of set the table if you will in verse 14 it says when the hour had come Jesus he sat down with the 12 apostles with him and then he said to them with fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I say to you I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God the Lord knew the future the pain of scourging and the torturous death on the cross that awaited him that very evening but he had an intense desire to share this meal with each of them think of the Lord's desire he was eager to teach them from that meal the most wonderful truths ever revealed that meal would be transformed forever went from a simple Passover meal to something we're still doing hundreds and thousands of years later its celebration would become an acted parable of his life and death Jesus would recoil at the reality of the cross but not from this part his time with his apostles his heart also swelled at the thought of the next time he would eat which would be beyond history in heaven we know he would be resurrected and he would actually eat in their presence but he was thinking you know the very far future of everyone returning unto him in heaven and so his heart traveled beyond the sorrow and death to reunion with them in a sort of festival of joy they were having this simple meal together as they reclined as the writer in Hebrews put it Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame but the center of that joy is that his redeemed you and I will sit at a table with him in his kingdom and so that's the thing that we can put to mind as we anticipate what we're about to do so the worship team is going to lead us through a song as we sit there and during the song if you would come up and, and take your uh, communion elements and then return to your seat I will come back up and then we will take communion together Amen passage continues we read that Jesus then took the cup and he gave thanks and he said take this and divide it among yourselves for I say to you I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes he instructs them to divide from a single cup signifying their communion with one another and Jesus again taught them of the future blessings in store for all who are his and then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me
Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And so, Lord, this has been a wonderful service, and we know that we're going to continue now to um, go down and, and celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of three people who have decided to make a public declaration of their faith in you. All of that, Lord, was made possible by your work on the cross. And so, Lord, we continue to rejoice in your goodness. We can continue to rejoice in your love and your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Continue our celebration today. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.